Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 321 of our Kick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Sculpting Recovery, an interview with Flora Debra. Flora was born in France, grew up in Italy, and has now been living in Tel Aviv, Israel, where doctors flat out deny the existence of Lyme disease. Flora was told all of her symptoms were in her head, it was all psychosomatic, and there was nothing wrong with her, but she refused to accept this diagnosis and left the country to seek specialists to eventually diagnose her with Lyme disease, Babesia, mycoplasma, and EBV. She went from being extremely sick to being this vibrant, energetic, glowing, happy individual we saw here today on this podcast interview. We're really excited to share with you exactly what Flora did to regain her health and how she got to the point where she is today. So without further ado, Flora Debra in Sculpting Recovery. Hey, Flora, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. Hi, hello. Very nice to, to be with you today. It's really nice for us to meet you as well. And uh, I think you're our first Middle Eastern guest. So that's really exciting mm -hmm. uh, for us and I think for our listeners. Um, it's always, uh, I guess, always sad, but always interesting to know that you know, there are no geographical limitations to uh, Lyme disease. And uh, although they're not, we're going to talk a little bit about this, but there do not appear to be any geographical limitations to you in your life. You've <laughs> lived all over the place. So um, why, don't, why don't we talk about where you settled now first so that, you know, folks can get a sense of where you are. And then we'll talk a little bit more about uh, your world travels. <laughs> so uh, at the moment, I'm in Tel Aviv. I've been living here for the past uh, six years, I think. Yes, maybe nearly seven. And um, yeah, I, I was actually born in, in France, in uh, Evian, in the mountains next to Switzerland, where there are uh, the water, I guess. <laughs> and um, I moved to Milan, to Italy, when I was uh, three years old with my family. So I grew up and did all my schooling uh, in Italy and um, moved to the UK. Uh, when I was 24, I think, and uh, I lived in London for about seven years, and uh, yeah, and then I moved to to Tel Aviv. Right, so I right now you've created FOMO for all of our listeners. You live in almost <laughs> every beautiful major city in the world. So let's please don't let's let's, let's start now. So you're you're currently living in Israel in uh, Tel Aviv. Yes, I am. So talk to us about uh, Israel and what it's like to live in Israel and what do you do um, professionally uh, in Israel today? Sure. Uh, so I'm an artist. Um, I came here um, 2016 and I've done my master here, my MSA in Bezalel Academy. And um, I made lots of good friends. I, the art community here is very alive and uh, uh, much smaller compared to the one in London. And I really, really enjoy that. I feel like people are kind of helping each other and are very open-minded. And I met my partner here. And then one thing, you know, <laughs> take the other and I stayed. All right, so Israel, Israel was the place where, uh, where you completed your education. Um, yes. it, was, it was a place where you met your partner. Uh, and it was a place where you fell in love with the 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 city and and all that was offered in the city, and that's why you're currently living in Israel. Yeah. So let's go back to the beginning. Let's talk about uh, about your um, your time in France. So you were you were born in France, uh, and um, you were there just for a short time. So you're, I, I'm assuming your parents met and lived lived in France, and you were you were born there and you lived there. Uh, 
for a couple of yes, years. Yes, they, they actually met in Kibbutz Baran, so in Israel. My dad is from Paris, and my mom grew up in Milan, but she was born in Turkey. And um, then they moved to Montpellier, they moved to France, and then to Evian. And then I was born uh, there, but just uh, we just stayed there briefly, just for a couple of years. And, and then because my uh, mom's family was in Milan, they decided to, to join them to, to move okay, to Okay, so you, so, you, so you now, now move, move to Italy and you said your, your, your educational, at least your primary education was in Italy from, yes. from when you first started going to school until, until uh, your undergraduate or your, your university studies. Did you, did you study your, in, in Italy for your un, initial university studies? Yes, so I did my first, uh, my, I did my three years in Italy and then I moved to London to do a postgraduate, but all my schooling was, uh, before that was, was done in Italy. Okay, so um, let's talk about your education first. I, I, I'm, I'm interested in two different elements of your education. Of course, you, you, you've always had artistic aptitude and we're gonna talk a little bit more about that, but let me, let me talk about um, during your primary education, I'd like you to share with us, um, A, whether or not you believe that you were given enough inf information during your primary education to be uh, competently capable of interfacing with medical professionals, meaning were you, were you medically literate? Um, and, and I don't just mean in terms of health, but in terms of using the medical system if you were to get sick. And the second uh, uh, area of inquiry is I'm wondering whether or not you knew anything about ticks or tick diseases from your primary education. Yeah, we'll start with the second question first because it's a very quick answer and the answer is uh, I had no idea <laughs> that Lyme existed. I had no idea what a tick was. No one ever told me that. And I used to horse ride during the summer and in France and no one ever <laughs> talked about that ever. So no. And in terms of uh, medical system, um, my mom and dad took me to uh, homeopathic doctors when I was a kid. So I was always, um, say, acquainted to a more um, holistic way of healing the body, uh, while also going to my uh, GP. So I think I had some tools, maybe not enough, but I did have some uh, idea that there are different ways to to heal. I think. Okay, so let's talk about your your childhood activities. Uh, I, I um, you know, we 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 know that you've had artistic aptitude from from your, your childhood. So talk to us about how uh, that was fostered in your family and through the educational system. How did you know that um, art was your thing? Um, I did and I didn't. Uh, so I was, I guess, making all the time, drawing, uh, filming doing stop motion in my bedroom, <laughs> all kind of activities by myself. I was really, I guess, good at entertaining myself. I was an only child, but I was never bored. Um, but I think uh, the Italian school system does not um, help artists, <laughs> I guess, to understand uh, their way. Um, I went to a scientific high school. Uh, I never had a drawing class. Um, so, kind of have to be a bit um, from me, like uh, trying to fight against uh, all the ways in which I was pointed out at, I think. So, um, so, I, 
So as as a, so you weren't getting your artistic enrichment in school. You said you were largely in this in this um, scientific school with a very sort of traditional approach to education. Um, yeah. Did you find as someone with an artistic mindset and aptitude that at times you felt like you were Stupid. not just not receiving enrichment, <laughs> but you were you were different? Then, yes. uh, then you're absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Yes, I had a in high school, especially, I had a hard time. Um, it was a very competitive high school and lots of science, lots of math, lots of languages, Latin. It was not easy for me. Like, uh, I mean, I, I was okay, but I was never the best <laughs> in any of the classes, and that changes once I switched to art. and. I felt like I found myself and most of all, I found my people. So you found yourself and your people. So do you, do you believe, again, just let's say focus on your primary education. Did you, yeah. did you feel that your, that, your, that your teachers didn't understand you? They didn't understand how you, how you thought. They didn't understand how you learned. They, they, they just didn't understand Flora? Not much. No, I think uh, it was very uh, tailored. The education was very tailored for different kind of minds, which was not mine. Now, I understand during your primary education, you were, you were not only doing a lot of artwork, um, you know, and I'm assuming you were, you were in nature trying to, you know, get inspiration from nature while you were engaging in your artistic pursuits, but I also understand that you were an athlete. So were you, were you engaging in any outdoor activities, either in the pursuit of your artistic um, talents or either training or playing games in, uh, uh, in the outdoors when you are pursuing your athletic pursuits? Uh, mostly in the summer. So in the summer, I was horse riding. Uh, in the winter, I was, uh, I was a figure skater for many years. So that was mostly indoor and I guess uh, quite safe from that point of view because it's basically inside a fridge. So, but uh, yeah, in the summer, I was uh, in the countryside and outside all the time. Right, so let's focus on on your equestrian pursuits, your horseback riding. Right, that was what you sure. were doing. You were doing that during the summers. Um, did you ever find ticks on the horses that you were riding or you were caring for? Uh, and did you ever find any ticks crawling on you when you were engaging in your equestrian activities? Not as far as I know, because I was not literate about it. I had no idea what it was. So maybe I thought it was a mosquito or something like that and I was 10 and no one ever talked to me, like look out for ticks. So not that I remember. Okay. So you now go to university. You're now, you yeah. now find your people because you're, you now pivot over from this very traditional scientific and mathematic based education system to where you're now receiving the artistic enrichment that you, you were craving during the early part of your life. Talk to us about how things changed when you went to university and how that helped you to discover your purpose. Sure. I think the big uh, switch uh, came when I moved to London, um, where I continued my education. And that's when I allow myself to study art, because before that, I studied sociology. So I didn't really fully <laughs> allow myself to do what I felt I wanted to do. And, uh, and that's where um, I suddenly like acquired confidence and um, I felt at ease in class. I felt I was good at something. I felt lots of good things, I think. 
All right, so talk to us about London and what that experience was like, meaning you were now studying art. Where did you, where were you studying art and what type of artistic expression were you, were you developing? Sure. So I was, at the time I was starting, uh, was uh, studying photography uh, at the University of the Arts. And um, so photographing a lot, um, lots of uh, outside, outdoor uh, photo shooting. I was uh, working, I started working um, after, so basically I take a postgraduate uh, course of one year and I started working uh, right after that, um, mostly as a commercial photographer. I was still printing and doing things in darkroom for myself in the meantime. So I was very, uh, it was quite full on. I was working a lot and um, trying to make the ends meet and also trying to establish, my, my, establish myself as a photographer. So now let's let's talk about uh, your health. Um, you were um, you were a vibrant, athletic uh, young person. Um, you were pursuing now your career as an artist, um, initially uh, through the photographic arts, and um, and now you start to um, you start to get sick. So talk to us about how um, how how your illness began to present. Um, to you and how it began to interfere with your pursuit of your uh, dreams uh, as an artist. Sure. So while I was in the UK, I was not I was not sick yet. So I was uh, doing well. I was working 100%. I was really okay. I moved to Israel and I was still doing uh, really good. Uh, I started my master's degree uh, in fine art. So. I broadened, I think, my horizon a bit. I started working sculpturally uh, with different materials. And during my second year of university, that's when I, I got uh, a, a bull eye rash on my arm. So, and I was not sick um, at the time. Like I didn't feel anything. I just had this massive mark on my arm. And I started to get really ill about a year afterwards. Okay, so let's, let's focus on the rash. So um, when, you, when you saw the rash on your arm and, and, and you, were, you were pointing to your left arm, so I'm assuming that's the arm where you saw the rash. Um, what was your reaction when you saw the rash? And um, did you take pictures of it? And did you go see a doctor about it? Yeah. So I didn't notice it right away. I was uh, in school and then a friend of mine noticed it because it was on the back of my arm. And she screamed like, what's that? Because it was really, it was really red and really, really large. And so I looked at the back of my arm and I got really scared. I thought, okay, what is that? And I remember this scene of like all my uh, classmates like around me looking at my arm and being like, what's that? And uh, a good friend of mine, also a classmate of mine was, uh, she's uh, from Austria. And her dad has Borrelia, has uh, Lyme disease. So she was like, oh my God, that's Borrelia. So I had my answer very, very quickly in that sense, but then that's not how it worked out, unfortunately. Uh, but she told me like, you need to go to a doctor right away. So I panicked a bit and made some phone calls, got, went straight to a doctor, uh, skipped class, went, showed it to the doctor and she told me, uh, no, it's, it's, you know, it's probably just a spider bite, uh, don't worry. He gave me a cream, I put a cream on it. Um, went home and I started 
researching a bit. I posted, I remember the mark on Secret Tel Aviv, which is a group on Facebook about the city saying like, hey guys, does anyone had something like this? Is it a spider? Uh, someone again brought up, it could be Lyme disease. You know, it looks like a cool eye rash. So I Googled some more and I got really, really scared because I, oh my God, Lyme disease, what is this? Wow, I can become chronic, this is horrible. So I went to another doctor the morning after and another GP went to her, I was like, hey, do you think this is Lyme disease? Look, it's massive. And she's like, ah, I don't know, I'm not sure. Let me take a picture. I'm gonna send it to a colleague, we will check. Uh, I asked her, can I have some doxy? Can I have some, can you give me some antibiotics? And she gave me a few days. She gave me seven days of antibiotics and she told me we will discuss this further. So the day after, so I start to take my doxy. The day after she calls me and she told me, stop the doxy, it's not Lyme. Don't worry, it's nothing. She prescribed me a Borrelia uh, antibody test, so the classic ELISA test. I go take the test, but obviously it's too early to have any results because I still have my retain <laughs> my migrants on my my eye rash on my arm, and I'm still thinking it's live. So I keep keeping I keep taking the the medications, and I go to a specialist, which is supposed to be the one who knows. It's a infectious disease doctor supposed to be the line specialist uh, in israel so i go to him and i show him the my arm i show him picture from the first day i show him like how it's evolved and i told him like is it lime and he look at me and he laughs and he say flora darling you don't have lime you got lemons and i'm like okay so it's three doctors that are telling me it's not lime <laughs> My, 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 my family is starting, like, I, I, I'm a very sensitive person. I, you know, I was never really truly sick in my life, but I do had like some, you know, a bit of depression, a bit of anxiety generally, like coming and going. So we thought, okay, you know what? Like stop being like a hypochondriac, probably, probably it's nothing. So I do like my seven days of toxic anyway, and then I continue with my life. And I have, after two, three weeks, a second erythema migrans that comes, a second bull eye rush. That comes in the on same my leg. place now? No, it comes on the leg. So it's a, it, it means that the doxy did a bit of its job and then it was not strong enough to, I assume, I don't know. Maybe, or may, maybe you were bitten again. Maybe, maybe. And so Laura, before, before we discuss the second rash, which, which sure. we certainly have to build out, I, I'd like to talk about the first rash and your interaction with your doctors um, sure. and, and your interaction with the social media community in Israel. So this begins with you having a friend who sees the rash tell you she believes that um, you have Lyme disease because her dad had Lyme disease. Yes. And you then want to reach out to the larger community in Tel Aviv and you put up the picture on social media and you're getting feedback from folks who are telling you that it looks like it's a Lyme rash. Um, what is the sort of general culture uh, around Lyme disease in Israel? Is it a well-known disease? Is it something that um, you know, that people are, are, are generally concerned about and aware of, or is it just a sort of like very narrow sort of subset of people in the community and you just happen to come into contact with somebody as a classmate and other people on social media? 
Exactly. Yes, it's it's barely known, unfortunately. And um, later on in my story, I tell you, I went to a, a doctor, another infectious disease doctor, once I already have my dinos, and I told him, look, Lyme disease exists in Israel, like, make sure you're taking notes of it. And he told me, okay, we would, I mean, <laughs> who knows, but it's, it's barely known. They believe it does not exist here. So. Okay. So were you getting that sense when you were talking to the three doctors you saw, that, the initial three doctors, that they didn't believe there was Lyme disease in Israel and that's why they weren't as, um, as excited to, to diagnose you with Lyme as, um, as maybe they should have been or, or as capable, I don't want to use the word excited, but as, 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 as willing to uh, diagnose you with Lyme? I think, I think the first one generally for it was a spider bite. He did not. I don't know if he knew what Lyme disease is, seriously. And um, the second one, um, I think she done her studies in uh, South America. So maybe she knew a bit more about it, but obviously not enough. And the third one was just, <laughs> I have no words. <laughs> All right, so, so, the, so, the, the, so the first doctor, the first doctor didn't have the information that the subsequent doctors yeah. had because you, you, when you, when you had the friend tell you that uh, they believe that you had Lyme disease because their father had Lyme disease. Um, you know, you said that to the second doctor, but that second doctor said she was going to send the picture to colleagues to, colleague, to, see, yes. to see if uh, she was getting feedback from colleagues. And then she also gave you a Lyme test, but of course it was immediately after the bite and we knew the antibody test was not going to show that, but she didn't know that. Right. Um, so which doctor, by the way, gave you the cream? Was it the first doctor or the second doctor that gave the you the cream? The first doctor. The first doctor. Now, um, do you know if the cream that the doctor had given you uh, was steroidal cream? Did it have steroids in it? And if it did, um, you know, is that something that you shared with the other doctors because that might have been immunosuppressive? Good point. No, unfortunately, I, do, I, I don't remember anymore. Okay. So let's let's uh, let's talk about this third doctor, and I know th this doctor is one that you're the least pleased with. Um, <laughs> this is the infectious disease doctor, right? Now, was this infectious disease doctor someone who held himself out or herself? I don't know what the what, what, what the type of doctor was, um, but what, what, did this doctor did this doctor um, hold themselves out as someone who had uh, either experience or expertise in treating Lyme disease? Absolutely, yes. So that's how um, <laughs> I found him as the expert in the country of Lyme disease. Okay. So uh, now did, did that doctor treat you any differently than the second doctor? Meaning did that doctor say, hey, uh, we have, there are different types of tests that you can take and the test that you were taking, which was an antibody test would not have, would not have come back positive or negative because it was too early on in the process. Um, did the doctor say, hey, you know, we, we should treat this prophylactically with a longer course of antibiotics. It should be six weeks rather than six or seven days. I mean, did you have any of those kinds of conversations with the no, infectious disease doctor? Uh, the opposite. He told me to stop the doxycycline. He told me to stop the medication. And he said that because the uh, bull eye rash was starting to fade, then it meant it was not Lyme disease. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so the, um, that's insane. I'm jumping in. I never jump in, but I'm listening and I'm, and people can't see that I'm shaking my head and making all kinds of faces before. <laughs> and this is just crazy to hear. 
that it's even worse in Israel than it is in the United States. I'm sorry, Flora, that you had to go through all that. Of course, Flora. Really, really, what the what the what the dissipation of the of the uh, rash was showing was that the doxycycline was was working, and, and the doxy and the doxy, of course, was um, was removing the symptoms. But of course, the problem, and we we need to use this as a as a as a you know as a teaching moment together, right? One of the reasons why you shouldn't have doxy for only a short period of time is what it does is it does remove the symptoms, but it isn't helping your body adequately to reduce the microbe load because the life cycle of Lyme is at, is going to be 30 days, which is why, why uh, at least ILADS recommends that you have, you have the doxy for at least a month. But I think most practitioners are recommending six weeks so that you have adequate protection during the life cycle of the bacteria, right? So you have, you, even though you did take the, uh, the doxy for the seven days, it wasn't an adequate period of time. We'll learn later on, and and the first signal that you have that the that the doxy was not adequate was that you had a second rash. Now this time on your leg. Exactly. Yes. So let me ask you one question about the the first rash. Um, what were you doing just before you got the first rash, and do you believe you were bitten by a tick just before you before the first bullseye rash revealed itself um, on your on your arm? So um, I was working on my uh, final exhibition of the master degree. So I was uh, traveling a lot between uh, Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, taking lots of buses, but not really on like walking in the countryside or nothing like that. But I did live on top of a park. So, which I mean, it's, uh, it's not a very uh, green area, area. Uh, and you know it's uh, it's the desert here, so um, it's it, it's not a lot of trees. Uh, but I do believe that I, I I got bitten in the park or just in my balcony. Oh. Okay, so now let's let's pivot over to the second rash. So you um, you now have you now have your second rash. Um, and now, do you believe that you were bitten a second time, or do you believe that the rash was just presenting as a result of uh, of your your short course of um, antibiotics not effectively assisting your your body in reducing the microbe load? Yes, my my, my intuition is is the second one that the doxycycline done a bit of the job in uh, <laughs> in keeping the situation under control, and then and then Borrelia took over again so now did you when you when you when you discovered the second rash on your leg did you go back to any doctors and show the second rash i called uh the doctor that told me uh, i had lemons <laughs> and i told him look i have a second rash can i send you a picture and he told me no <laughs> he just uh, brushed me off <laughs> He told me he was busy and that it was not like really, <laughs> I don't know, the worst experience. And um, yeah, and I was really busy with my, my final show at the time. And I was like, you know what, probably there is a spider in the house. And I just, I just thought probably it's nothing at that point. So other than the two rashes during this window of your journey, did you have any other symptoms? Uh, not for a while, no. I was, I was okay for. So you, you didn't, you didn't have any, 
So, Flora, you didn't have any of the traditional flu symptoms or no. aches or anything like that. You, the, the, no. the two rashes, and then you you felt better, and you went on with your life, right? You're yes, you're, absolutely. You're, you're developing your your artistic skill set. Um, yeah. You're you're in the midst of your studies. You have a busy life. You want to go on with your life, and you yes. move on with your life. Yes, I'm graduating. I I, I with my partner, fall in love. I'm I'm doing really good for about like nearly. More than more than a year, maybe. Okay, so you have, you have no reason to think there's anything wrong. You, the rashes go away. You're living your life. Uh, you're in love. You're being you're you're being you're being enriched um, artistically and educationally. Life is good. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> until until it isn't right. Yes. So talk talk to us about uh, what happens about a year later. How do the symptoms come back? So what happened is that I started, I would say like maybe six, seven months later, I started to feel a bit more tired, like a bit more tired. Um, I was able to work a bit less in the studio. I was always a, a night owl. So I really enjoyed working at night, stay in the studio till two, three in the morning, maybe sleeping a bit in the morning. Like all my routine suddenly felt a bit uh, wrong. Like I couldn't stay up late anymore although I always had in my life so I kind of felt like around 10 I had to okay it's time to go home like I had to go and rest so but I didn't uh, I thought that was probably because I finished the studies and suddenly I was uh, sharing the studio with like you know someone else I was you know in a different place maybe I had a bit of depression like life as an artist is not the easiest so the path is not so clear. There is an issue with money and how to make a living and also galleries. It, it, it's, it's complex in that sense. So I thought that maybe I was just a bit depressed and that's it. And then about so a few months after that, uh, I started having a knee pain. So I had pain in my knee and I was tired a bit. I had pain. Um, and I, that's when I started visiting doctors. Okay. So let's, let's, let's stay with this window first. So, um, so your fatigue starts to set in, but you're in a really stressful time in your life. You're making a transition from, from life as a student to now life as a professional artist. And of course we, we all have this image of the starving artist, which is, which is, you know, sort of that path that, you know, you, you folks in the artistic community take. And, you know, we, we, we certainly, we certainly, those of us who have not been on that path um, always think that it's a, that it's a glamorous path, uh, but it doesn't sound like it is as glamorous as we imagine it to be. It sounds like it was a really painful and stressful path. And it also sounds to me that that's probably was immunosuppressive which is why your disease begins to take off and, and it first presents as fatigue and then you start to feel pain. Yeah, so I start to feel some pain, and fatigue, and, um, and then I start to feel uh, sick. So I start to feel um, very, very tired, very, very fatigued suddenly. Uh, my, the pain in my um, leg get really strong. Uh, I get inflamed um, lymph nodes, um, so they enlarge, and 
I don't know, I start to be a bit you know, anxious about what, what do I have? Like I probably have a really, really bad flu, but why do I have pain in my leg as well? So I was going to, in the meantime, I was going to uh, osteopaths, not osteopaths, so orthopedics to have it checked. And I went to the general orthopedic, which sent me to the, uh, uh, the one specialized in back pain, who sent me to the one specialized in knee pain, who sent me to the one specialized in feet pain. Who, so it was like from one to another trying to figure out what was going on. And in the meantime, so I got really, really sick. And uh, at that point, um, I took a, a blood test to see if I had a mono by any chance, if I had EBV, and it came up positive. So I had mono, so I had EGM for the first time, uh, a bit of EGG and no, not a EBNA. So I guess I had uh, EBV for the first time. And I had, I had mono. So it was a really bad timing because I had exhibition coming. Finally, I had, you know, I had to make installation. I had to work, but I couldn't. But anyway, I was, I was sick and I thought, okay, I have mono. I know what, I know what the issue is. So, so, so yeah, let's, yeah, let's, 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 let's explore that together now. So um, at this time, did you think, did your mind take you back to thinking about Lyme disease? Because you had just a year before, um, you know, this very interesting um, experience with Lyme disease. Uh, when did you first start thinking Lyme? If you did again, after you started to become symptomatic with your fatigue and your, your various, um, you, you had, you had uh, the lymph node issues and you had the knee and back pain. I think, uh, Lime was always on the back of my head since I had the whole eye rush. I always thought maybe, maybe, and then I would try to shut up that voice because I felt okay, you're being contract. And a bit also friends, family members, everyone was like, okay, but by now you will be really, really sick. You don't have that. So I assumed that I didn't, but I did have this voice always telling me you have to look into Lyme. Okay. So when you were going to your doctors, when you first went to the various orthopedists that you had gone to, were you, were you reminding the orthopedists that you had this, this, um, this contact with Lyme disease? Yeah. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Um, because I saw the different reaction that sometimes was coming, which was not a positive one. But uh, I changed GP again, once again. So I remember showing him the bull eye rush in pictures. And he told me, no, it's, it's nothing. Once again, I, I, I saw about like 30 doctors and- 30. Yes, I think 20 out of those, I showed the pictures and I was told it was nothing. One of the things we talk about all the time is, um, is uh, body signals. And one of the things that, that we find with uh, artistic folks is that you're generally more in tune with your feelings and you're generally more in tune with, you know, with, with uh, signals. So you were getting these signals that you had Lyme disease, right? You had that in the back of your mind and your body, you know, I, I like to sometimes call it the onboard diagnostic system was saying to you, Flora, you have Lyme disease, right? Yeah, I, I felt really, really ill. So after I had some mono for two, three months and I started to feel a bit, better after that after I mean I still had mono but it started to improve and I was like okay it's great it's it's you know that's how it's supposed to be you know two three months four months and then you're starting to see the light out of the tunnel and then suddenly it it 
it didn't go better. It actually started to get worse again. And at that point, everyone was very confused. Like all my family members were like, why you're supposed to be better? So well, that's when things started to get tough because although I have an incredibly supportive uh, family, they, they, they couldn't understand. And also the pandemic was about to hit. So it was very, it was very confusing times. So I started feeling, I, I couldn't get out of bed. So I was, I was bedridden from then. I was bedridden for about a year. Um, I had nightmares. I had panic attacks. I, I was, I had pain everywhere. I was sweating all night long. I had um, air hunger. I discovered afterwards I had babesia. Um, so yeah, it was, it was tough. And my mom flew a couple of times uh, from Milan to Tel Aviv to be with me. I think the second time it was really hard for her because it was just when uh, there was the first case of COVID in Milan. So she managed to fly anyway. She was there for a few days and, but everyone thought it was at that point that it was psychological, that I, I was making myself feeling all those things. It was all, it was all in your head, Flora. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Okay. So let's, let's explore, let's explore a couple of things together. The first is, um, so your onboard diagnostic system is telling you you have Lyme disease. The voice in your head is telling you you have Lyme disease, but there, you know, one of the things that we, that we've learned on this podcast is that anytime we have a plan, anytime our body is giving us a plan, there are three different enemies that surface external, internal, an intimate enemy. So let's first talk about the external enemies or people who you are not close to, the experts you're working with. You had to talk to 30 different doctors, 20 of whom you showed pictures of your rash, 20 of whom you told them that you had a, you had come in contact with Lyme disease. And all of these people told you you didn't have Lyme disease, correct? Exactly. So and despite your... Sorry, especially one doctor, uh, the GP that I started seeing at the time that I thought, he's American, so I thought maybe he's more literate in, in online. And that's the one I showed, like uh, at the beginning of the, the second chapter of the journey, I showed the, the picture too. Um, because I was going there quite frequently, I mean, every couple of weeks because I was not feeling better and I was trying to understand what was wrong. He started telling me that, yes, it was all in my head, that I had to find a hobby. He referred me to a psychiatrist. He put me on uh, um, Prozac and on uh, um, Sanax. He was, <laughs> yeah, basically he said I had hysteria. <laughs> so of course, and, and this, is, this is really, I think an important lesson to focus on, which is, Rather than doctors partnering with you and respecting your onboard diagnostic system and saying to you, Flora, why do you feel that way? And why is your body telling you that? And, and exploring that together, they were essentially saying, nope, it's all in your head. Doesn't exist, right? So, so what was happening was these external forces were telling you to ignore your body signal. In fact, they were telling you, you're crazy. Yeah. I even went to the ER one night because I was feeling so horrible. And at the ER, actually, they did like an okay uh, job because they prescribed me uh, lots of um, exams, tests, blood tests uh, to see if I had like any autoimmune disease. So I think it was the first step towards something different that was not just checking if my knee was okay and doing MRI or something like that. 
And I remember going to that same doctor with the, basically you get the prescription from the hospital, but then you have to go to your GP to have it approved so that you can do it through the health system here. And I remember him laughing and saying like, why are you taking all those tests? This is really, you're gonna just use the money of the government for nothing. <laughs> all right, so now let's talk about the intimate enemies to your plan, right? And the intimate enemies to your plan, I'm talking about the people who are closest to you, your friends and your family and the people that you love. They, you said they're all good people and they all love you, but they were also telling you that the body signals that you were receiving were incorrect. They were they were enemies to that plan as well. So talk about what it was like to share with your intimate uh, your intimate people, your parents, your 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 friends, uh, your partner. What was it like to share with them how you were feeling and what you believed was wrong with you, and with all of them telling you that they didn't believe you. <laughs> Yes, difficult. I don't know. They were incredibly supportive because they were listening to me all the time and they were there for me. And the amount of nights in which I, I cried thinking I was going to die and that everyone was going to die because I was in full on paranoia and my partner was awake there with me holding me. It was, like, it was amazing. Um, but yeah, I guess because of my background, because I am a sensitive person, because I'm an artist, because of, you know I'm a woman, and all we can put on the list of what our beliefs are stands for, um, it was hard to. I guess most of all because the doctor said I didn't have anything. So if science is saying no, you don't have that, and the blood test is saying no, you don't have that, then it has to be psychosomatic. Although they, like nobody really understood what I had and. And my parents couldn't imagine, like they didn't think this it actually could be lying. They took care of me a hundred percent and they forward me and they 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 fed me, they but they they baked me. <laughs> they they were really, really supportive and in even now they're you know, they're my pillars and rocks and <laughs> But of course, it was difficult to understand what was uh, what was happening to me. So, so that's what. So now that's what your own mind is telling you, right? So you have yeah. you have the doctors telling you that uh, you're you're there's nothing wrong with you. You have your family and the people that are close to you telling you there's nothing wrong with you. So now, what is your own mind saying? Is it, it was your mind saying, hey? you're an emotional artist. Hey, you're an emotional woman. I mean, is that what your own mind was saying so that you could ignore this signal that you were, that you were getting that you had Lyme disease? I, I had two sides. One side was like, okay, you're going crazy. Like your depression went to the stars. Like I always battled with a bit of depression. So I felt like, wow, but is this really harsh? Like it was, I never felt it that way. And I hope I will never feel it again. Like it was a dark hole. And the other side of me was like, I'm dying. Like, I'm going to die. Like, no one knows what I have. Maybe I have terminal cancer. I don't know what it is, but I'm, I don't know. Like, they will find out one day and then it will be too late because it's too much. So now we have, we have the sort of cascading series of voices telling you there's nothing wrong with you. And, and, and you're now starting to now lose touch with your your body signal your body signal telling you that you're sick your body signal telling you have Lyme disease so how do you continue to move forward with seeking a diagnosis if 
everything is telling you that you don't have Lyme disease. So what happened, happened afterwards is that, so the, the pandemic has officially hit Milan and there is the last few flights from Tel Aviv to Milan. So I board on the last possible flights. I'm in an horrible state. I'll take three Xanax to be able to, and I'm a small woman. So for me, that was a high dose to be able to take that plane. So I arrived to my parents and I can't see my partner anymore because for six months, there is lockdowns. So I'm stuck in Milan. I'm staying at my parents because I'm not functioning. So they take care of me. And just before, uh, also the doctor office closed because then there is no more way to go to any doctor. Uh, my psychologist who is in Milan, uh, he referred me to a rheumatologist that was able to see me, to meet me on the same day. So I went to her and uh, she, she visited me and she told me that not to worry, that it was Epsom bar, that it just took longer. She once again denied it could be Lyme. I show her every, like the, pictures. I mean, this goes on and on and on until um, I think uh, June, end of June. So in the meantime, I do another MRI of the leg and uh, talk with another doctor who do a test of my hair to check if I had some uh, minerals imbalance, um, all kind of stuff. But uh, in June, I'm still not better. And just the same, like sleeping 20 hours a day, taking a shower and going back to bed because I cannot stand. And I'm a person, I mean, I'm a sculptress. I weld, I work with glass. I, 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 I love life so much. I like to make things. And it was so out of character of me. Even if I do have ghosts of depression, usually I always get up from it I find my way out and here it was just not working and at some point I decided that I will go and take the test on my own for Borrelia again and I did and Laura, it came out positive real quick I want to jump in there because there's so yes. many red flags that I've been observing while you and Rich are talking about your experience right and one of them is out of nowhere you got hit with crippling anxiety paranoia depression for a small woman you're taking a ton of Xanax just to travel and and these are unusual, out-of-the-blue symptoms. It wasn't like you were dealing with these debilitating psychological symptoms before you got bit by the tick and before you had the Lyme rash, right? But yet your doctors are telling you it was all psychological, even though it's something that came out of the blue. That's a huge red flag, right? And I'm saying this for yeah. people listening because many of us doubt, is it still persistent Lyme or am I crazy or is it psychological? And it's human nature to doubt ourselves, right? But I just want to reinforce, we know our bodies best, to Rich's point, with our body signals, right? And this is out of the blue. You had a rash. You had a tick bite. I mean, the, everything lines up with chronic Lyme disease. And now you have mono and you develop Epstein-Barr virus. Many Lyme patients have EBV reactivated because they're immunocompromised, because their bodies are weak, and they have EBV levels off the charts forever because their body is so weak. So now they're just giving you this label of Epstein-Barr virus because you had mono which isn't a real diagnosis. It's basically saying you're living with it for the rest of your life, but how do you feel better? You want to feel better. And as patients, we want symptom. We want to feel better. And as doctors, they just want to give us labels, whether we're crazy or EBV. And how do you help those types of symptoms, right? So thankfully, despite everything Rich talked to you about, all these influences coming on telling you it's not Lyme, it's, it's all mental health, you still did a Lyme test and you did it out of pocket, it sounds like, and you tested positive. So where did you have to go? I mean, being in Israel now, 
where did you get these blood tests done? What labs did you use? And did you look for other things besides Lyme? Um, did you look for other tick-borne illnesses like Babesia, Anaplasma, or Lichia, things like that as well? So what happened is, uh, in Israel, I did them through the health center here. So it's, it's, it's all paid by the government, I mean, by the government, by the state, like basically your taxes goes into like providing uh, general uh, medical treatment for people. And it's the same in Italy. So the first tests were done here in Tel Aviv. And then the ELISA test, which is the test I done in Milan, um, was done like out of pockets of my own. And um, it was just a general ELISA test because that's what was offered. And that's what I knew as well at the time. Uh, and I was really, really lucky that it came out positive because then after that, I wanted to do a Western blot because when I told uh, my GP, I told like a doctor, a Lyme literature doctor that I contacted uh, online as well, like saying like, hey, I got a positive um, Borrelia test. They told me, ah, but you need to have a Western blot, otherwise you don't have it. And um, so the Western blot came out um, negative. I didn't have buns, they didn't send me the buns, dance buns, so I have no idea <laughs> how much, how much, or anyway. And then uh, I was also told by the rheumatologist that it could be the EBV that is making it look like I have Lyme in the test results, which made no sense because it's different antibodies, but that's what I've been told. And it's really the opposite where Lyme will keep EBV active, not EBV triggering false Lyme symptoms, right? I mean, it's the complete Absolutely. backwards opposite Absolutely. of what your rheumatologist told you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, in the meantime, I got Ogovitz book, I got Brunner books, I started reading about Lyme, I devoured the books, and I started to understand <laughs> what I was but that I was going through and that I was not nuts, but it was like the paranoia and anxiety were part of, you know, the illness. I went to my GP in Milan, finally reopened her office after being closed for months because of the pandemic. And I told her about the results and she told me, yeah, also like, I'm not sure. And then I show her the picture of the bull eye rash. And then finally someone said like, oh yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe that if you have Lyme. So she gave me uh, antibiotics for three weeks, I think. It was not doxy because it was summer. So she gave me, wait, I wrote it down. Uh, I think amoxicillin. Amoxicillin uh, is, yeah, that makes sense. And she, she was good in the sense that she sent me to uh, have an electrodoppler done of my heart. To like check e that my e EKG, is that? Yeah, yeah, so check that the heart was okay. So at least she, done that so that was good we knew that my heart was not being attacked and I started with the medicine but I knew that like from my readings since I got the books that that will have done nothing that <laughs> it will have been like you know the spiral will go into an egg and then back to a spiral state again so so Flo, I'm going to stop you there again because you, sure. you hit something spot on right where the spirochetes the Lyme bacteria that are like the corkscrews that kind of go through your blood and your tissues they change shape and they become these circular cysts and they evade antibiotics. And then when you stop the antibiotics and you're still immune compromised, they come back to spirochetes and they keep causing damage in your body. But you knew that, not your doctors. Thank God you were doing all this research. But what I really want to ask you about is you said you picked up Dr. Horowitz's book and Dr. Buner's book. And those two books are 
very different in their approach, I feel, to looking at Lyme, right? Buner is very natural, using herbs and natural medicine to overcome Lyme disease. And Dr. Horowitz is more Western, we'll call him, where he uses more traditional pharmaceuticals and antibiotics and dapsone and things like that to treat Lyme disease. So what was your takeaway? Were you confused when you were reading these books because they had such different approaches? And why did you choose to read such books that were so diverse? I guess is the question I have. I think it, it does reflect well who I am. So like, I do believe in like, you know, uh, contemporary medicine, maybe now a bit less, but also in alternative medicine and which is not alternative, I mean, traditional, which is maybe not the right word, but more ancient medicine as well. And uh, I don't know, I think it's the two books that spoke to me. And in the end, like I choose Booner, like I'm, I'm all into the herbal protocols and that's how my life is now. But I think I wanted to know as well. And having also the, the ability to speak with doctors uh, that we will you know, encounter every day and understand which, what is what. And like, for example, I didn't know the steroids are really bad for Lyme. You know, like I knew they were bad for EBV. So I remember they wanted to uh, give me steroids for my back pain and I say no, fortunately. Uh, but yeah, I think to be aware of both, I think that was important for me. Did you feel better at all when you started the doctor's, I'm sorry, the amoxicillin, even that was only three weeks, were you, was it helping a little bit or was it really just not helping you at all, even symptomatically? I had a max, massive herx for the first week, like really, really horrible, like, so yeah, not fun. And then it got a little bit better, but not great. It took me a long time to, to get better. So after that, uh, my mother found uh, a doctor in Belgium who does uh, microimmunotherapy. So I started for one year, I'd done uh, some uh, uh, program with him. So it was all done on the phone and um, he knew Lyme disease and he gave me microimmunotherapy and also a medicine called Alternative Aroma, which is, I think, the, the equivalent of uh, the German What's the name? Um, it's essential oil, basically, like uh, to take orally. So are you said, uh, I'm sorry, I, I'm, sure. the first thing you said is that microimmunotherapy, was that what you said? Yes. Yes. Microimmunotherapy and essential yes. oils, right? Is what you did yes. for one year with a doctor out of Belgium, correct? Exactly, yes. What is microimmunotherapy? And yeah, I guess if you can just talk about what immunotherapy is in general, and then what microimmunotherapy is and what that looked like for you in your experience. So from what I understand, uh, it's a very small dosage of uh, elements of the, um, for example, one of, one of the medicine uh, is uh, called OSPC. So I assume that he is giving you uh, OSPC, which is the, the, the membrane, I think it's a membrane or something like that, the protein around the Borrelia. Yeah, they call it, I think it's the OSPC, I believe stands yes. for outer surface protein, correct? The OSPC yes. for, for Lyme disease. So it's OSP and C is the type and there's different types. So it's almost, it's almost like provoking the immune response to Borrelia, right? It's, it's exactly. basically telling your immune system, hey, wake up, there's Lyme disease, go kill it, right? Exactly. Kind of thing. I think that's the exactly. approach. Exactly. So that's what he's done. It's, it, it's a bit like uh, homeopathy in some ways, but it, it's mixed more with a tradition, I mean, 
or common com contemporary medicine. I think it's something between the two. But you have to start slow, right? Because if you do it too aggressively, you can have a really bad response and it hurts with the massive die-off. So talk to us about what that was like and how did you gradually introduce the microimmunotherapy or was it something that you had a bad reaction to at first? Uh, no, he gave me like, uh, I, I had the same amount for the whole year. And so I was taking that and then I was taking another mix that I have here in front of me. And this was more like targeting EBV and it had things inside like ill, IL-10, IL-10, R1, uh, EBV viral, IL-10, DNA, ADN. I, I, I don't exactly have um, explanation of what it is, unfortunately, but I think it's what it, like we were saying about targeting um, the Borrelia and the Epstein-Barr. So it was really twofold. You were using targeted therapy for Lyme disease, but using immune therapy that was specifically looking for the outer surface detection of the bacteria, right? And then you were using another protocol that was an antiviral rather than an antibacterial like the immune therapy. And the antiviral was going after the Epstein-Barr virus to take both of those pathogenic loads in your body and bring them down so you can see an improvement in your quality of life and an improvement in your symptoms and allow your immune system to take back over and do what it's supposed to do. So this is sort of the idea behind, I think, natural medicine and home homeopathy is you're bringing everything down, you're you're boosting your immune system. And then in the long term, the goal is your immune system will win the day, right? I mean, that's kind of what I'm hearing from you here. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So this is one year. Walk us through what it was like. I mean, was it sort of like in the beginning, like, nothing's happening. What am I doing? Was it like, you know, it hurts? Was it like, wow, I'm feeling much better. Was it ups and downs? You know, give us an idea of this, what this one year window is like for you. Ups and down, I guess. Uh, I was functioning a bit more. So I would say the sleeping went down to 16 hours a day, which was, you know, <laughs> already better. I had to take- Better than 20, two, right? Yeah, it's much better. Yes. I had a few working, working hours in which I could do things, uh, but not- as close as I was, I was hoping. So it was very, very slow. Uh, I started moving a bit more, like I was going to short walk, but I was short in breathing. Uh, I had short breath and started cycling a little bit again, but also that it was, because I've always been a very active person. So I soon I had, had a bit of energy, I would go and try <laughs> to be my old self, but it was very tricky and also, I had a very hard time and also until this day, I still find it hard to understand when is a hoax and when is a flare. Um, because it takes me, I, I noticed that it takes my body uh, time to hoax. I'm not hoaxing right away. So it's always been a bit challenging to understand if to take less, if to take more um, and to modify the protocols because of that. Laura, when you did have a hoax or a flare, generally we have tools in our toolbox that allow us to get short-term symptom relief while flaring or having the herx. So like I was just sharing with Rich that I was using Termoro for quite a while, haven't used Termoro CBD oil in probably two months. And then I was starting to get some like neck and back pain, but it was minor. And I was like, all right, no big deal. And then I'm like, I'm an idiot. And I started taking Termoro and it was gone, right? So like what tools do you have that are similar to Termoro for me that were helping you through, you know, these symptoms that were popping up while you were herxing or while you were flaring or while you were treating just to kind of have a better quality of life throughout the Lyme experience? Sure. So um, I guess Brubopinella, like uh, most people, <laughs> most Lyme patients, I think that's the first thing I learned to use. Uh, then I would do definitely uh, Epsom salt bath. I, did, I never had a bath. So what I do is uh, a food bath. And uh, one of my symptoms 
uh, that always comes when I like a flare of hers is coming is like really cold, freezing cold feet. So that always gave me a lot of relief. And what I picked early, like later on, was the Alka Sanitizer. Um, oh, the Alka Seltzer Gold. Yes. Yes. This really That's a staple. That's great. Yes. Yes. Really enjoy. I mean, I don't really enjoy drinking it, but <laughs> it does the job. It's an acquired taste, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I drink a lot of uh, herbal tea, uh, dandelion tea. I really like dandelion, always like dandelion. It's like purifying. Um, I got myself uh, a um, sauna like a few months ago, finally. <laughs> I wanted one for a long time. It's a far infrared sauna blanket. And that really helps with the pain and sweating it all off. And it, 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 it's uh, also psychologically, it's kind of like make me <laughs> take a breather and say, okay. No, so the sauna is, a, you bought a blanket infrared sauna, yeah. correct? So it kind of like wraps around your body and then it produces heat. You sweat. Yeah. It helps with blood flow. It helps with getting all this, these toxins that are stagnant in your body flushed out through your, your lymphatic system and your yeah. blood. But you said it also helps you with your mental health. What, so are you saying if you're like in a bad place mentally, it'll actually help you have a better attitude and mood as well from the infrared sauna? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yes, that and also I have another uh, two tools that I've been using, which is one is the uh, an acupressor, acupressure uh, mat. Oh, the acupressure mat. Is, yes. Yes, that also I really like. It it's quite painful at the beginning, and then suddenly the body really relaxes, and I've been really enjoying that. And the other thing that I discovered a few months ago is um, some kind of like uh, brain retraining through somatic uh, experience. So instead of being DNR, uh, DNRS, DNRS, uh, yep. yes, it's more somatic. So it's like post-traumatic um, uh, therapy, I guess. Um, and I follow this uh, coach, her name is uh, Sarah Jackson, and she makes you do some kind of like exercise in which you look at different things. Uh, you Basically, you learn to be in the present and to feel uh, positive things by uh, touching your body in certain ways and I found that I was very skeptical, skeptical at the beginning and then I was like wow this is magic <laughs> like it, 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 it made my like from a, a fight or flight like to a normal state in like five ten minutes it's really really effective so two follow-up questions the first one is the acupressure mat our good friend Lauren Lovejoy who is the president and CEO of Lime Warrior recommends it and has it on on their social media but to your point, it kind of like, and I know this is going to sound like a wuss, but it kind of intimidates me because it does seem like it would be a little painful to lay on it, right? So, I mean, <laughs> yeah. but give us an idea of like, is it really as bad as it looks when you're laying on it? What kind of symptom relief do you get while using it? I think for the first minutes, you're like, wow, this is torture. And then it, it's unbelievable. It just, the body just relaxed. I don't know how, like it's, I, I can fall asleep on it. And I made my partner try it as well. And he also fell asleep completely. So it means it works, I think, at least for us. <laughs> that's so that's so fascinating. I might have to try that myself. And the Berber Pinella is something we hear often too for herxes and flares. So would that help with that more so the pain and the inflammation? Is that where that helps you, you think? I think so. I I it, it was never something that I would, you know, take a dose and then feel like, wow, I'm much better. Like it it never really worked that way. But I kind of trusted. So I keep taking it anyway, thinking that, you know, one small thing plus one other thing might do the, the trick. 
Let's go back to the nervous system and the brain rewiring, because we hear about DNRS a lot. We've heard about vital side. We've heard about Gupta, but it sounds like this is a, an alternative that we haven't heard before. And you kept referring to it as somatic brain rewiring. So I guess if you can first, if you, if you have a general idea, what does the word somatic mean? And if you can give us a little more detail, like what actual exercises are you doing in this brain rewiring? Are they breathing techniques? Are they, you know, are they mindset techniques? Are they, are they eye movement techniques? I want to learn a little bit more about what these techniques really are and how they're helping you come out of fight or flight and get more into a balanced state of nervous system. Sure. Uh, it's about being, uh, well, it's about being present, being in touch with our own body and feeling a neutral or positive sensation. So uh, there are some eye orienting exercises, as you mentioned. So to look at uh, things and to uh, talk about the things that you see and how you feel about them or other exercise in which maybe you have, uh, you're embracing yourself in a certain position. Um, you are uh, maybe moving your head, like it's repetitive uh, exercise that you do for five, 10 minutes and it's very uh, slow movement. And for me, it's very hard to meditate. I always find it really, really challenging. And I really try, especially uh, when I was at my sickness, sickness I, I really tried uh, and it didn't work for me. Like I couldn't stay still. It was too uh, much in my in my fall. And instead, this one I think because I'm such a bodily person and I so much into movement, I think it's um, it's it works better for me at least. Yeah, to say you you remind me very much of an Italian like Rich and I. You're talking with your hands, you're moving your body. I'm like, I like this. We're, you know, we can relate. We're, we're, we're the same type of people here. You know, we talk, we're moving, we're throwing our hands around. Where you know, you're you're. I love this. So just I know our, our view, our listeners can't see us, but I had to share that little commentary because we're very much alike in that. So, but but talk to us about. I mean, this is a one year period, right? You're doing all the. I mean, first of all, thank you for sharing with us all of those great things you did to manage symptoms and curb inflammation, curb pain balance your nervous system. Those are all really powerful tools you just share with us that are low cost, no cost tools people can do, I believe, to improve their health. Right. But I just want to ask you, I know I'm kind of drilling in on this, but if somebody wanted to learn more about the brain rewiring and the nervous system, because I think that's really cool. And I want to learn more. Right. I mean, sure. it's a simple tool. Why not try to see if it helps you? What kind of keywords can we Google? Because it's not it's not like we can just go to Google and type in DNRS or Gupta or vital side. You know, is it just sure. somatic brain rewiring? Like, is there a term for this that we can I go and research? So. Let's see. I've been Googling as we're talking and I found who you mentioned earlier, Sarah Jackson. And I believe the website is sarahjacksoncoaching.com where it talks all about this work you're doing with your nervous system and brain rewiring in a somatic way. Is that correct, Flora? Is that yes, the right resource? Yes, yes Okay, great. Yes. I know our listeners like myself are gonna go look at this and study it after this <laughs> interview. So thank you for sharing that. <laughs> Pleasure. So now I'm really curious, one year, right? You're doing all these things. You're doing the microimmunotherapy, you're doing essential oils, you're doing all these other great tools that you described to help your pain and help your nervous system. You're doing this great tool or this great protocol to help you with your EBV. How do you feel at the end of this one-year window? So I, I'm much improved. So I'm, I'm not that ridden anymore. I'm starting to have more of an active life, uh, but I'm not well enough and I'm plateauing. <laughs> so um I kind of feel like it's time to change doctor. It was a hard thing to do because I like the doctor that was, you know, helping me and you know, like he was, you know, really good, but I, I, I guess I needed something else. 
and uh, done some research and I found uh, another doctor uh, in Finland. And, uh, and this, I think, thanks to the pandemic, it's thanks, I mean, you know, the, <laughs> the good side of it is that because of Zoom now, it's easier to make contact with doctors that are far away. So I started seeing um, this doctor, the clinic, it's called uh, Astris and um, start an herbal protocol. So I've been on that since then. So you, as for time context, you were 35 when you first got pretty sick. You were 36 when you got diagnosed and you're 38 today. So time frame were about a little less than a year ago now when you pivot doctors yeah. to go to this new doctor, correct? Yes, exactly, exactly. Okay, so, and now you're starting herbals with this doctor. So can you give us an idea as to what types of herbals are you using? Is it a protocol? Like, is it Buna's protocol? Is it Dr. Rolls' restore kit? Is it Nutrimedics and the Cowden protocol? You know, or is it just a custom homeopathic remedy you're getting from this doctor? Okay, I would say it's a modified Buner protocol. So I have Japanese knotweed, I have cat's claw, like I have the main ingredients that he suggests. Uh, but I had like things that were tailored for me. So I had turmeric uh, because I had the arthritis symptoms. Um, I had olive leaf, um, ashwagandha at night to make sure I would sleep and that my immune system will get a boost. And then I had all kinds of um, different um, uh, vitamins that I will take as well. I start my morning with NAC, uh, drinking uh, lemon water. Um, so a few different um, medicines that uh, she incorporated that were uh, put just for me, I think. And have you been on this over, you know, for the last year or so since you started with this doctor or have any changes yeah. you have? Yeah, yeah, we've been changing. Like, I mean, with the same doctor and we've been like, uh, changing things um, slowly, slowly. Um, Herbally so, speaking, oh, so you're, you're bringing yeah. in new herbs, you're taking out herbs, you're kind of just exactly. modifying the protocol as exactly. time goes on to respond to your symptoms and what's going on with your body based on your body signals, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And in the meantime, I've done um, two blood tests. So one about a year ago when I started treatment with her and one a month ago uh, uh, with uh, Armin lab, which is this lab that is in Germany. And uh, so I had finally like a paper that says how much Lyme, I mean, how much, that I had Lyme, I had Babesia, and I had Mycoplasma and EBV. Lyme, Babesia, Mycoplasma and EBV, yeah. you said? Exactly, yes. So you were dealing with all that, but all your doctors and family thought you were crazy. That's the part <laughs> I come back to, right? So now, now here, this is where, where Sweet Sweet Revenge comes in, right? You're now having a diagnosis of these four things and you're feeling much better. What are your yes. friends and family members and former doctors saying and how are they reacting to their previous approach with you saying you're nuts when obviously you weren't? I mean, it's, it's, I'm curious to see how that went. So, well, I think the doctors couldn't care less. So I, I, I didn't really bother to inform them. But when it came to friends and family, I think they, they were just really happy to, to hear that I had a diagnosis that I was that I was going to be okay. I mean, that it was a tough disease, of course, to deal with, but that we will find a way. And I think it was just like massive relief for everybody, really. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, I know you're being, you're being humble, Flora, but what I love so much about this podcast is, you know, you drew a very clear picture of how sick you were, right? 
and seeing you and I wish I wish sometimes I wish this podcast can be a video podcast because just seeing how you're glowing and your energy and your body movement it just shows how happy and healthy you are right now right and you know the, the contrast of how you described it, how sick you were versus how healthy you are now it just made my day and I know it's going to make our listeners day and it's going to give them hope that they can get better and you gave us so many great tips right so I do I know we're kind of at the almost the present date before Rich picks back up I just have to ask you again you gave us a, a ton of awesome low-cost, no-cost solutions, but is there anything else you did or that you can share with our listeners, even if it's just mindset, even if it's just something over-the-counter medicine, even if it's just something really simple, right, breathing techniques that are low-cost, no-cost solutions to help people dealing with chronic Lyme disease and co-infections? Um, I would say two things. The first, I, I started uh, writing a diary, so every morning I wake up, I have my knack <laughs> I have like half of my pills and then I write three pages of journal and so I take everything out all the all my feeling all my even if I don't have anything to write I just write down I don't have anything to write today and it helps and then the other thing that um, that I done I uh, my partner got me a ukulele and um, it was very cute and very light and I would just play it in bed and I'm really bad with music but it helped I mean also to think about other things and not to I mean you know we want to read all about Lyme and be on the forum and talk about that all the time but also it's good to to keep the mind open to other things sometimes yeah. so let's let's now talk um Flora, about um, the beautiful part of your Lyme journey, right? Matt Matt is talking about how you're glowing and how you are full of energy again, uh, but there was a long process that you took in order to be able to get there, and you learned a lot about yourself while you were doing that. So talk to us about what you learned about yourself and your purpose while you were going on this uh, really challenging journey. Sure. Um, first, I think I learned that, I mean, I'm, I'm much, much, much better, but I'm, I'm not healed. And I think I learned that no one is healed. Like we always have imbalance that we need to watch out for and, and take care that, you know, we sleep well and drink water and that we take care of ourselves. And um, I think I'm more sure about, um, about myself. Um, less apologetic um, and in terms of like my art practice I think it changed drastically so I think that apart from the fact that I was working more sculpture before and now I'm uh, drawing and painting a lot more because it's kinder to my body but also it allows like somehow uh, my imagination to be a bit wilder I think but what, what do you mean by that? So, so you went from sculpting to now painting and drawing, right? And I, I know part of the reason why you pivoted from the more, uh, you know, I guess, the, the bulk version of this, you were sick and you were, you know, you you were drawing in bed. And, and you know, and so you, you made that pivot. Um, but now it sounds like you stayed with that different genre of your artistic and you said, it, it, it it's it's what it, it gives you more freedom it gives, talk to us more about how you know how this this change that was triggered by uh you know by your illness 
has now given you more freedom in your artistic expression? Yeah, I think like, so I started drawing, uh, I reconnected to drawing actually. So I draw all my childhood and like when I was a teenager. And then when I grew up in some ways and I also I become an artist, I was very concerned about what art should look like and how, what kind of artist I wanted to be. And I disconnected to drawing, which I felt was very personal in some ways. And I think while I was at my sickest, like that's the only thing that I kind of managed to do. And also I had, because of Lyme, uh, as probably many of us, I had really, really wild dreams. So I was very connected with this um, part of um, living that it's, you know, <laughs> happening when you are asleep. And I think I, I saw in drawing a way to uh, represent that and to take it into my everyday life. So I think that changed uh, how I see my art practice a lot. So I, I, I draw all the time now and it's uh, more of a mixture of what I live in my daily life and also like dreams and what I feel. And there is less uh, boundaries, borders, I would say between the two. And I think I'm, I'm happier because of that. And I'm, um, I'm more sure about it and less, um, less apologetic about it. So now talk to us about, um, about your part of now the Lyme community and, um, and why um, you've now decided to dedicate some of your energy and your talents to doing things like this podcast and, and, and having, you know, having the social media presence that you have. Talk to us about what called you to do that uh, and bring you know, your artistic experience and talents to this community uh, in the way that you are. Sure. Um, so I think like it's, it, it's important to create awareness, um, first of all, because we don't want other people to get sick. So as soon as I can, I bring Lyme into the conversation. I mean, not as soon as I can, but I do bring it and I'm trying not it not to be my identity. I don't want it to be my only identity, but it's part of my life. So I do want to share it with others because that's who I am. I'm, I'm, I have a, an illness and I'm taking care of it and I'm healing and I'm better, but uh, it might be someone else might have it one day. And if they do have the tools, they may be able to get it not as bad. So I think that's, that's important for me. And, and, and certainly there were many people when you were on your journey who gave you insight into what your disease was and gave some validity to the signals that you were getting. Um, and it's because they were brave enough to share their experiences or their family's experiences with Lyme disease, which gave you some uh, some validation, right? So yeah. as, as, as part of as part of uh, our duty to serve the world and the people who who we come in contact with, we do have to share our experiences so that they will be alerted to this terrible disease and that they you know they know that they're not alone if they ultimately do come contract it. And there are resources available to support them through this because, yeah, this is a dark journey, but there are always going to be beacons. And you've become one of the beacons in this community, which is why we love you. And we were so excited to have you on this on this podcast. Uh, so, so as a beacon, um, talk to us about what you would do if God forbid your partner who has been so supportive uh, <laughs> of you during this during this whole, you know, really, really difficult and dark journey. He was one of the beacons in your life. So 
Um, God forbid he came into you after this podcast and he had a tick biting him, biting him on his arm. Um, what would you recommend that he do so he wouldn't have to go on a dark Lyme disease journey? Sure. So I guess I will take the tick off <laughs> with tweezer or if I have a kit for taking, you know, ticks off, I will do that and I will keep the 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 tick and have it sent over to a lab. Um, I think first thing I will put uh, some Japanese knotweed on the bite and some clay. But I, I'm assuming if someone is not in contact with Lyme does not have <laughs> Japanese knotweed in the house, so I will sterilize uh, the place of like the where you've been bitten. And personally, I will take doxycycline anyway, like a month of doxycycline compared to you know months of months of being ill is really okay so that's what I would do. Flora we can't thank you enough for taking so much time out of your really busy uh, and powerful artistic uh, um, um, profession and work uh, we really really enjoyed this podcast we know the folks in our community are going to love uh, everything that you've shared so thank you so much for uh, joining us on the Tick Bootcamp podcast. Thank you. Thank you for what you're doing for the community. I listened to so many of your episodes and they really really had me keep the moral going and also learning new tips and really thank you so much. Thank you for listening to our Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Flora Debra. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Flora, please check her out on Instagram at Flora Debra or go to our website at floradebra.com. That's F-L-O-R-A-D-E-B-O-R-A-H.com. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of our Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com slash bite to view our blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on your podcast platform of choice. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library of over 300 episodes, subscribe to our email list, or share feedback, check out our website at tickbootcamp.com. Thank you, as always, for listening.